Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Like I said, we are um, returning to chapter 12, which I already preached. Um, Let me preface what I'm doing here. The Bible describes itself as alive and active, the Word of God as alive and active. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that we don't analyze the Bible as much as the Bible analyzes us. It is not a static book. Instead, working in tandem with the living breath of the Holy Spirit, the book itself becomes alive. The scriptures do not change. They are fixed, but we do. And therefore, it speaks to us in different ways as this inexhaustible source of discernment and application. And why am I saying this? Because two weeks ago when I studied chapter 12 of Acts, um, I really struggled with the direction to take my sermon. The sermon I preached was definitely the most conventional interpretation and application of the chapter that fits within the story of Acts and how it is unfolding. But as I studied it, I kept seeing a different message, a different word for us in this passage that I just really honestly couldn't shake and haven't been able to shake it since I looked at Acts 12 a couple weeks ago. So I just decided to do something I don't do very often and return to the same passage and preach a whole other sermon with a different direction. A sermon that I am hoping speaks to something that I think we are all feeling right now. This time last year, Mark and I were laughing about it this week. This time last year, our church was beginning to shut things down for a 14 days to flatten the curve effort. Longest 14 days of our lives. What, what a year. And while it seems like with the vaccination and the numbers trending down and all of that, it does seem like the end of what has felt to be never-ending is in sight. The impact of this year will be felt for years to come. I'm going to argue generations to come. Yes, of course, lives lost, half a million in our country. That's felt and that will be felt for many years to come. Yes, of course, businesses closing that have been open for decades and generations closing. Yes, of course, these things will be felt. But I want to talk about what isn't getting the attention that I think it deserves. I read an academic study this week on the effects of this past year on our culture's mental health and it was devastating. Academic studies should not bring you to tears. 
but this one brought tears to my eyes. The amount of depression, addiction, anxiety, loneliness, suicide, you name your cultural trend and everything is not just high but historically high. And perhaps sensing the weight of that in our world and quite frankly in our church made me see this passage in a unique way. It seems to me that our world finds itself imprisoned. More than ever, we are bound by the chains of addiction, of loneliness, of depression, of suicidal thoughts, and on and on. And speaking candidly, I fear that there is this pervasive hopelessness that has set in. And so through that lens, I would like to revisit this passage. Seeing ourselves, seeing those that we love, bound by chains too strong for us, but not too strong for our God. I want to offer two thoughts this morning, two what I hope are much-needed words for us. A word to those who find themselves in prison, and a word to those loving someone or several people who find themselves in prison. Chances are you either find yourself in bondage this morning, or you find yourself loving someone, agonizing with someone who themselves is in bondage this morning, or perhaps both. Either way, let's hear from God's word together. First, a word to those in prison. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now, when I preached this a couple weeks ago, I explained that those details are there to paint the picture of the impossibility of the situation. Two soldiers bound to Peter by two chains behind a prison door with two more soldiers standing guard, meaning Peter is not getting out of this. It's impossible. And the observation that I'm making for us this week is that although we cannot relate specifically to where Peter finds himself in a Roman prison, we most certainly can relate to the hopelessness of his bondage. We all have our prisons to some degree. Metaphorically speaking, all of us come here this morning dragging chains with us. Of course, to differing degrees, And this first point is probably more towards those who are in serious bondage to something. But all of us to some degree, because of the nature of sin and the fallen broken world, are in bondage. Now on the other side of Peter's chains were Roman soldiers. My question for us this morning is what is on the other side of your chain? Perhaps it is an addiction that has only escalated this year. According to the statistics, that's true. That's what we're facing. Record alcohol consumption, prescription medication, food, either, either binging or restricting, uh, social media, pornography. The list of addictions that have been heightened by this year goes on and on. That doesn't have to be an addiction. 
It could be a debilitating anxiety or depression that is so enslaving that you can't even really get out of bed in the morning, or if you do, you're just kind of going through the motions. It could be healthy things, your career, your children, their performance, your religion, your Christianity, your parents' approval. Certainly money in our culture is a big chain. We could do this all day long, exploring the questions of what is on the other side of that chain, what is enslaving you. I, I just, I'm going to trust that the Spirit is faithful to show you. You know what's on the other side of that chain. If you don't, you need more community in your life, or you need to ask the community in your life, or you might need to go to counseling and help somebody, trained professional, to help you find that out. But I'm willing to bet that most of you know what you are chained to, whether you want to admit it or not. And whatever it is, what I want you to see from the passage is I've got bad news and good news. Here's the bad news. It's too much for you. God will never give you more than you can handle is not in your Bible. Psalm 88 is in your Bible, which is why I had us read it. The psalm will live meant without one ounce of hope. Doesn't end with a happy ending. It's just a psalmist crying out to God saying, I am hopeless and I don't know where you are. This is too much. This passage is in our Bible. The chains, the guards, the prison door. This is definitively too much for Peter to handle. He's not getting out, and neither are you. Now listen, I have great compassion for how you got into your prison. I truly do. And by the way, you should have compassion on yourself as well. Your bondage did not come out of thin air. It emerged out of your complex story of disappointment, sadness, hardship, pain, perhaps even significant trauma, meaning behind your imprisonment is a Herod, so to speak. But no matter how we got into our prisons, at some point we all have to deal with the prison ourselves, and the first step is to confess that I can't deal with this prison myself. Every addiction specialist will tell you that that terrifying moment of humiliating clarity has to happen. And the Bible would agree with that. Whatever it is, this much I know, it is too much for you. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. It's not too much for your God. Let me read through these verses again. And what I want you to pay special attention to is the complex relationship between God's sovereignty and Peter's responsibility, okay? Verse 7. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. He said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he, that is Peter, went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading out to the city. It opened for them on its own accord. They went out and went along one street. Immediately the angel left. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. Now, I don't think anyone is going to argue with Peter's conclusion there. Nobody's giving Peter credit for his escape from prison. The Lord rescued Peter. 
And yet, there are those interesting details included on purpose. Get up, Peter. Peter gets up. Dress yourself and put on your sandals. Peter gets dressed, puts on his sandals. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter follows him. Step by step, Peter obeys the most basic commands given to him as he is led out of his prison. And so, yes, nobody's going to give Peter credit for his escape, and yet Peter was not a passive player in the story. Granted, it's not much. He doesn't do much. The story is intentionally told in such a way that Peter remains helplessly dependent throughout his escape, and yet in the most basic ways, Peter actively participates in the Lord's deliverance. And there's your paradigm. When I say that it is too much for you, but not too much for God, don't hear me say that therefore you should sit idly by wallowing in your prison, waiting for God's deliverance such that you just expect to wake up one morning and what do you know, God has set me free. It does not work that way. Upon your deliverance, you will give glory and credit to God, rightfully so, And you will look back and see small steps of obedience you chose along the way. You chose to embrace along the way. So speaking practically, very practically, to my friends who find themselves in prison, it's too much for you. It's not too much for God. He can lead you out. But there is this most basic question that will set you free. Are you willing to be told what to do, and will you do it? Listen, it's not as complicated as you're making it, friends. I know it feels that way. It feels utterly maddening when you're in the prison, yanking on those chains, trying to get yourself out of this thing. In vain, we try to escape our own prisons. But in reality, it's as easy as reaching out to this man, our pastor of community and care. His job description is your health. He's not an angel of the Lord. We would hire an angel if there was one, but we'd get Mark instead. He's a minister of the Lord. Do you know what that means? He's a trained and ordained expert in the ways of God's deliverance. So reach out to him and let him tell you what to do and do it. He may say, go to rehab. He's told people to do that. He may say, you need to go to this therapist. He does that. He may say, you need to go see a doctor and get on some medicine. I've heard him do that. He may say, you know what, I think this is as simple as I need to get you with this mentor in the church and I want you to listen to what they do, watch what they do, let them disciple you. He may say, you do need to get with Robert on this one or Will on this one or Nate on this one or whatever. You, you may need to get in a parish group. You may need to cultivate this habit in your life and put to death this habit. You might need to d- delete social media. You may not be able to have any access to the internet in your home. I don't know. I don't know what it'll mean for you, but at the end of the day, The fundamental question is, are you willing to be told what to do and willing to do it? Peter, get up. Peter gets up. Peter, put your clothes on. Put your sandals on. He does it. 
Peter, wrap your cloak around you, and I want you to follow me. And Peter does it. And, and, and in those simple steps of obedience, we see Peter out of prison, but giving glory to God. And so can it be for you. All right, now let's switch gears a bit. There's another dynamic playing out in our culture right now. The increase of those in these metaphorical prisons necessarily means that there is an increase of people in agony, in sadness, heartbroken, loving those who are in prison. And now I want God's word to speak to you, to those loving someone in prison or perhaps multiple people in prison. So you have a friend, you have a child, you have a parent, you have a spouse, someone you love. And with gut-wrenching agony, you are watching them suffer in prison. This next passage is going to tell you what you can do and what you can expect. First, let's look at what you can do in verse 12. When he, that is Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. What can you do? You can pray. Verse 5 of our passage, the first verse I read. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You see, in the first point, I said the prison was too strong for those in prison. Well, now I'm going to say in the second point, the prison is too strong for those who love those in prison. Meaning, this group who loved Peter... They had no illusions that they would be able to break Peter out of prison. They ain't getting into Herod's jail and breaking him out. And you can't either. I know you want to fix them, but you can't. You can't manufacture deliverance. And ironically, the more you try, the worse things often get. You can't fix them, but God can. So I suggest you pray to God. Now, I'm, I am admittedly being oversimplicity over, over here. I, 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 I mean that. I know there's more here. Of course, there are things you can do to love and support and help those that you love who are struggling in these ways. Um, again, ask Mark, Mark can walk you through. How do I love someone like this? What are appropriate boundaries? Am I enabling? What do I need to do? And there, there are many things that discussion can have. But my point is, nothing you can do can fix them. And the surest sign that you believe that are your prayers. Prayer is your confession that you are not God, and it is the ordained means to access the true God. So everything we do for those we love is secondary to prayers for those we love. And if that strategy feels inept, it reveals a lot about what we believe about prayer. But I want you to notice something here. It says... In verse 5, that the whole church was praying for him. It says in this passage that many were gathered together praying, meaning a whole community together as one begging God for Peter's deliverance. It was a community affair. And that's important. When I say prayer is ultimately what you can do, I don't have in mind you individually offering up a quick prayer before you go to bed at night. I have in mind your community 
surrounding you, joining you, collectively begging God for his deliverance. I have in mind a communal campaign of prayer, your parish group, an email list. I mean, I have in mind, let's go after this together in prayer, begging God to do this. Will you allow that? And here's why I say that. Loving someone in prison can be a very shameful thing. For example, if if it's your child, you don't want people to know because of what that may mean about your parenting. If it's your spouse, you don't want people to know because of what that may mean, what they may think of your marriage. Or it may be as simple as you don't want this deep burden that you're carrying to burden others. But I'm asking you to not be ashamed and to not be timid. Let this community join you in begging God for his deliverance. John Piper had a prodigal child who at 19 years old came to his dad and admitted that he wasn't a Christian and he wanted to stop acting like it. And he basically said to Piper, I'm tired of being a Piper. I'm tired of the Christian thing. I kind of just want to party. So that's what he did. Now, this is at the peak of Piper's influence. He was leading an entire generation to the Lord. I was a part of that generation. But his son was in a far-off country. Do you know what Piper did? He asked the elders of his church to excommunicate his son. And then he begged his church to start praying for him. These are Piper's direct words. The night after my son's excommunication, I called him and I said, Abraham, you knew this was coming. He said, that's what I expected you to do. That has integrity. I respect you for doing it. Then Piper says, from that moment on, we all prayed like crazy. And he means, when he says we, he means it. I was praying for his son. You know why I was praying for his son? Because I was a college student at a conference where Piper was the keynote speaker, and he asked thousands of college students in attendance to start praying for his wayward son, who, by the way, did return to the Lord four years later. So when I say you can pray, I mean a communal praying effort. That's what you can do. You can't fix them. You can ask God to fix them. All right, that's what you can do. I want to close with what you can expect, and this is what I think we need. The passage turns almost comical. All right, so if you're loving, you are loving someone who is in the prisons of uh, just addictions or, or wherever they find themselves, what can you expect? The passage turns comical, verse 13. And when he, that is Peter, knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice, In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. I want you to stop and think about this. This praying community refused to believe that their prayers had been answered. In fact, they believed it was more plausible that an angel was at the door than Peter himself. I found that so fascinating this week and so relatable. It's one thing to pray. It's another thing to actually believe that prayers work. 
Oh, how easily despondency and cynicism set in when those we love are in bondage. It feels so vulnerable, even dangerous, to expose ourselves to the plausibility of redemption. To expect that God answers our prayers. That he will answer our prayers. It feels like a setup for massive disappointment. So we pray, but we don't pray expectantly. May I just say to you this morning, by the authority of Scripture the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, you have every reason to expect deliverance. You are free to open your hearts to hope and to dream of this moment in verse 16. But Peter continued knocking. I love that detail, by the way. He got out of prison. Now he can't get into his community because they think it's too good to be true. Hello, somebody please let me in. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Again, they were amazed that God actually answered their prayers. Verse 17. I want you to expect that this could be you and the one you love. But motioning to them with his hand is silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. I want to give you permission this morning to dream of that very moment. That moment where the one you so deeply love describes for you how the Lord brought them out of prison. I don't know when that moment will be. Again, we can't manufacture that moment. I wish we could. It may be decades of prayer. It may be that you don't even get that moment here on earth and you have to wait to glory to hear it. But I do want to give you permission to expect it to come. Hope is a Christian thing to do. So let's do it. Without hesitation, expect your prayers to be answered. And do you know why I feel the freedom to be so brazen with you this morning? Jesus gives me permission to do so. Briefly close by asking all of those who find themselves in prison and those who find themselves loving those in prison, fix your eyes on Jesus in the strongest prison of them all, his tomb. Jesus bound by chains that have never been broken in the history of the world, the chains of death. If ever there was a reason for hopelessness, this would be it. And then I want you to watch Jesus break the chains of death and walk out of the strongest prison of them all. Now I ask you, if he can do that, what can he not do? If the resurrection doesn't give you permission to hope, then I don't know what does. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is risen from the dead. You are officially allowed to expect happy endings. Let me pray. Fill us with hope, O oh God. Hope that we can be different, Lord. I know for so many people, we want to change. And it's just more of the same. Hope that we can be different, that we don't have to live in this prison. And then hope that those we love so dearly that we may have even given up, given in to cynicism and despair. Hope that one day we could hear them tell us how the Lord brought them out of prison. Hope is my prayer for us. 
that we would leave here full of that. And I pray that you would use your sacrament to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.